Well, on behalf of the entire congregation, I want to thank everyone who volunteered for VBS, all of the adults and teens. Um, We had an incredible uh, number of volunteers to come and minister to the children, and then, of course, over 300 children. What a blessing. You know, Jesus said, let the little children come to me, for such is the kingdom of heaven, and um, you were fulfilling that command of the Lord uh, in your service this last week. We're so grateful for all of the many, many hours of, of service and of preparation uh, that our volunteers put into uh, this crucial ministry of the gospel to young hearts. So thank you very much. I want to invite you to turn in the book of Isaiah to chapter 30. And we're going to be in chapter 30 and then on to chapters 31 this morning. If you remember, we're in the fifth section of the book of Isaiah, which goes from chapter 28 to chapter 35, and I've entitled that section, Woes and Wonders, Judgments and Joys, because this section begins with woes and judgments, but ends with wonders and joys. But the section itself is organized, as we've talked about in previous weeks, around six pronouncements of woe against six different categories of sin. In chapter 28, we see woe to the drunkards. In chapter 29, woe to spiritual apathy. Also in chapter 29, woe to those who live a double life. Chapter 30 is woe to the rebellious children who won't listen. Chapter 31, woe to those who trust in human power. And then chapter 33 is going to be woe to tyrannical rulers. And so the section is organized around these six woes. And three weeks ago, we talked about that first one, woe to the drunkards in chapter 28. And then two weeks ago, we talked about the second and third woes, woe to those who are spiritually apathetic and then woe to those who live a double life. And so then last week, we came to the fourth woe, woe to rebellious children who will not listen. And just to kind of remind you of the context, read along with me as I read Isaiah chapter 30, verse 1, and then we'll skip down to verse 8. Isaiah 30, verse 1. Woe to the rebellious children, declares the Lord, who execute a plan but not mine, and make an alliance but not of my spirit, in order to add sin to sin. And then skip down to verse 8. Now go, write it on a tablet before them and inscribe it on a scroll that it may serve in the time to come as a witness forever. For this is a rebellious people, false sons, sons who refuse to listen to the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, you must not see visions, and to the prophets, you must not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us pleasant words, prophesy illusions, get out of the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, thus says the Holy One of Israel, since you have rejected this word and have put your trust in oppression and guile and have relied on them, therefore this iniquity will be to you like a breach about to fall, a bulge in a high wall whose collapse comes suddenly in an instant." whose collapse is like the smashing of a potter's jar, so ruthlessly shattered that a shard will not be found amongst its pieces to take fire from a hearth or to scoop water from a cistern. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, in repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you were not willing. And you said, no, for we will flee on horses. Therefore you shall flee. And we will ride on swift horses. Therefore, those who pursue you shall be swift. One thousand will flee at the threat of one man, and you will flee at the threat of five until you are left as a flag on a mountaintop and as a signal 
on a hill. Last week we began making our way through four subpoints from chapter 30. If you remember, in verses 1 through 14, we see the indictment against the rebellious children of Israel for their rebellion and then their replacement of God with trust in Pharaoh. Instead of turning to God for help, they turned to Pharaoh. And then in verse 15, we see God's gracious invitation to repent and find their soul's rest and peace in him. Look again at verse 15. For thus the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, has said, In repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. But you are not willing. And that's the third section. Because of their rejection of this invitation and their refusal to trust in God, they were going to face the Assyrian invasion. But that brings us then to the fourth section in verses 18 through 33, which describes God's sovereign and gracious intention, which is for the redemption and restoration of Israel. And so that's where we're picking up today in that fourth subpoint, verses 18 through 33, the intention of God for Israel's redemption and restoration. Read along with me verses 18 through 26. Therefore, the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. O people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression, he, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right or to the left, and you will defile your graven images overlaid with silver and your molten images plated with gold. You will scatter them as an impure thing and say to them, be gone. Then he will give you rain for the seed which you will sow in the ground and bread from the yield of the ground and it will be rich and plenteous. On that day, your livestock will graze in a roomy pasture. Also, the oxen and donkeys which work the ground will eat salted fodder, which has been winnowed with shovel and fork. On every lofty mountain and on every high hill, there will be streams running with water on the day of the great slaughter when the towers fall. The light of the moon will be as the light of the sun, and the light of the sun will be seven times brighter, like the light of seven days. On the day, the Lord binds up the fracture of his people and heals the bruise he has inflicted. This is God's gracious, kind, and sovereign intention for the repentance and then the redemption and restoration of his people Israel. And I want to direct your attention back to verse 18, which I believe is one of the most beautiful verses in the Bible. Verse 18 says, Therefore the Lord longs to be gracious to you, and therefore he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. 
This verse says to the lost, to the wayward, to the rebels, that the Lord longs to be gracious to you. He is waiting to have compassion upon you. No matter how far you've gone, how deep you've plunged into sin, no matter how checkered your past is, no matter how much you think that it's impossible to ever be saved or to be ever reconciled to God, you are wrong because it says he longs to be gracious to you. He waits on high to have compassion on you. This is the heart of God. He longs to extend his grace to you. He longs to show his compassion to you. And the idea here is the same exact one that Jesus in the New Testament taught in his parable of the prodigal son. Remember that prodigal where the the rebellious son goes, you know, rejects his, his father, goes away and you know, lives a terrible life and then winds up destitute in a pig pen and then he finally comes to his senses and goes back to the father. And what did he find? He found that his father had been waiting for him every day at the end of the road, longing for him to come back, waiting to be gracious on him. And the father then showers grace and compassion and blessings upon the prodigal son. That's the heart of the Lord. Like that father, the Lord also stands at the end of the road and he is waiting for you. And when he sees the prodigal coming, he runs to embrace him and lavishes grace and blessing upon him. I want you to notice the last phrase in verse 18 because that last phrase in verse 18 says that the key the key which opens the door of God's blessing is something very simple. It is simply to long for God. Look at the last phrase of verse 18. How blessed are all those who long for him. The key to opening the door to God's blessing is simply to long for him. Now, if you're looking at the English Standard Version or the New King James Version, I'm, I preach from the New American Standard 95. The SV, the New King James, and the Legacy Standard Version all render this phrase as, blessed are all those who wait for him. And that's an accurate translation to translate it as those who wait for him. But I really appreciate the NAS translation because as I think it communicates the idea here better. The sense here is not just passively waiting around, kind of like waiting like you, waiting, you wait in line. It's a certain kind of waiting. It's the type of waiting that is characteristic of someone who's been separated from someone they deeply love and they, they can't wait to be back in each other's arms. They can't wait to be reunited. It's like a homesick traveler eagerly awaiting his reunion with his loved ones. He can't, he can't wait for the plane to get home. He can't wait for the bus to get home. He can't wait for that time in which he will be reunited with those he loves. When you wait for someone that you love deeply, you wait with eagerness. You wait with anticipation. You wait with longing. And so I love the NAS translation because it brings out that idea of waiting with longing to be reunited with the Lord. So this verse is saying that the key to blessing is to love the Lord so much that you longingly wait for him. And so if you are a prodigal, if you are sitting in a 
pig pen of sin, a, a, a misery of your own making. Your road home, your road to God's blessing begins with something very simple. It's the dawning of a longing for God in your heart. Waiting with anticipation to feel the loving embrace of his grace and of his love. And so the cure for rebellion and a wayward heart is actually very simple. It is to stop loving sin and to start loving God. Some of you are parents or grandparents who have a, a rebellious and wayward child or grandchild and you know the agony of it and, and the pain of it and, and you know what that the father of the prodigal son must have been feeling day after day as he waits at the end of the road hoping the prodigal will come home. If that's you, I, I know you're praying that you know, your prodigal son or prodigal grandchild will turn from maybe the drugs that are enslaving them or the immorality that has plunged them into darkness and into sin. And you're longing for them to repent of those things and be restored. But can I encourage you to pray? Don't just pray that they'll leave behind those wicked things. I want you to encourage you to pray very specifically. Pray that a love for God will dawn in their hearts. Pray that they will long for their heavenly father. Because if they have a longing in their heart for God, they will run to him. And as they run to him, all of those things will be cast aside as they come into the embrace of his grace, his grace which forgives and his grace which then trans transforms. The cure for rebellion in a wayward heart is very simple at its root. It is to long for God, to love him. A genuine love and longing for God brings the prodigal home. And once that love for God dawns in the heart, changes occur. The prodigal runs home to the Heavenly Father, casts himself on his mercy and grace, and then begins a process of change which is described in verses 19 through 26 and I want to walk you through those so in verse 18 we see where it begins it begins with a longing for God but then in verses 19 through 26 there are, there are concrete steps of change that are given and these were written to the people of Israel and some of the promises given are directed towards them and towards certain fulfillments which will take place in the end times but there are principles of biblical change which are taught here, which are also taught in the New Testament. And I kind of want to walk you through some of them and help you to see them. So this is a process of change from Isaiah chapter 30. And the first step in this process of change is to cry out to God. Cry out to God and believe that he will be gracious to you, that he will hear you and he will answer you. Look at verse 19. It says, Oh, people in Zion, inhabitant in Jerusalem, you will weep no longer. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. When he hears it, he will answer you. Cry out to God and believe that he will surely be gracious to you. When you cry out to him, he will hear you and he will answer you. And I, I love that word, surely. He will surely be gracious to you. He will certainly be gracious to you. You can have no doubt about it. 
It doesn't matter how far you've gone. It doesn't matter how bad you've been. It doesn't matter how wicked you've been. When you have a longing for God which dawns in your heart by the work of the Holy Spirit and when you run to the Heavenly Father, you'll find he's been waiting at the end of the road. He's been longing to be gracious to you. He's been waiting on high to have compassion on you. And when you cry out, Abba, Father, he will hear, he will answer, and he will certainly, surely be gracious to you. What a glorious truth that is there's a second step of change after we cry out to God in repentant faith and that is to realize that when we do so God will no longer be hidden from you but he will reveal himself to you as your teacher look at verse 20 although the Lord has given you bread of privation and water of oppression he your teacher will no longer hide himself but your eyes will behold your teacher So when you cry out in repentant faith, God will no longer be hidden from you, no longer seem far away. He will reveal himself to you as your teacher, your instructor, or to use the biblical term, your rabbi. Now, a lot of interpreters take verse 20 as being kind of figurative language. Your, your eyes, figuratively, with the eyes of faith, you'll, your eyes will be open to kind of behold the goodness of God. And certainly this verse is talking about having the eyes of your heart open. But I believe that this verse is a prophecy to Israel of the coming of Christ. This is a messianic prophecy. When they repent, their Messiah will come and they will see their teacher. And as we go on in the context, there's end times prophecies being listed here, especially in verses 23 through 26. And so I think that verse 20 is, has a foreshadowing of the messianic coming, of the coming of Christ. He, your teacher, will no longer hide himself, but your eyes will behold your teacher. What was the term that the disciples called Jesus most often? It was rabbi or teacher, my teacher. The third step of change after, after coming to faith in Christ is to follow the guidance of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will guide you in the way you should go. Look at verse 21. Your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right or to the left. God then will guide you in the way you should go. And just as I think verse 20 is a prophecy of the coming of Christ, I think verse 21 is a prophecy of the sending of the Holy Spirit. God is going to guide you in the way you should go. Kind of zooming out from Isaiah to the rest of what Scripture teaches about the ministry of the Holy Spirit. When Christ ascended, he sent the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit indwells the believer to provide guidance and help and comfort and conviction. We talk about, theologically, what we call the doctrine of illumination of the Holy Spirit. What is the doctrine of illumination of the Holy Spirit? Well, that is the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer to open their eyes and help them to see and understand the Word of God and then to help them apply the Word of God to their daily life. 
the Holy Spirit illumines or shines light on the scriptures which he gave us by divine inspiration. So the one who gave us the word then opens the word to us and helps us to apply the word, gives us the wisdom and understanding to apply it. And the emphasis in verse 21 is on a specific aspect of the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 21 again. It says, your ears will hear a word behind you. This is the way. Walk in it whenever you turn to the right or to the left. So the specific aspect of the doctrine of illumination being discussed here is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. This is the way. Walk in it. And whenever you deviate to the left or to the right, you get off into false doctrine or you get off into some temptation you you veer into antinomianism or to legalism or you get into this sin or that sin whenever you deviate from that straight and narrow path whenever you depart to the left or to the right you will hear the voice of the holy spirit in your heart saying no no this is the way walk in it the holy spirit will convict you of sin convict you of righteousness and of judgment and he will guide you in the way you should go he will work to bring you back to the straight and narrow path. This is the way. Walk in this way. You've veered here. You've veered there. Go this way. So the Holy Spirit who gave us his word, his written word, will take that word and apply it to our hearts to bring us back into the right way to convict us of error and sin and correct us. There's a fourth step here, and that's in verse 22. You will be set free from the sin that enslaved you, and you will cast it away like the refuse that it truly is. Look at verse 22, such an important verse. And you will defile your graven images overlaid with silver and your molten images plated with gold. You will scatter them as an impure thing and say to them, be gone! You'll be set free from the slaves you. You will cast it away like the impure, vile refuse that it really is. This is a key step of true change. True change comes when instead of cherishing sin, you begin to detest it. I want you to notice the phraseology. He talks about idols overlaid with gold or embossed with silver. And he says, you will finally realize it's an impure thing and you will scatter it and say, be God. You got to get rid of your gold-plated idols. Now, for the ancient Israelites, for many of them, actual idols, actual idols overlaid with gold for us oftentimes it's something else, but we seem to think that there's something valuable in that sin even something beautiful in that sin. And so we cherish the sin. But change comes when instead of cherishing the gold and the silver of sin, you begin to detest it. You realize what it really is and you are filled with revulsion towards it. Revulsion towards sin is what causes you to cast it from you. It's when you think there's something worth keeping that you hold on to sin or you may even set a sin down for a while but you keep it close enough to come back to later it's like someone who 
throw something in the trash, but we'll never take the trash out to have it carted away. Or throw something in the toilet, but doesn't flush. You just want to be able to go back to it if the need arises. Yeah, don't think about that one too deeply. It's, uh, you know, I mean, I want revulsion towards sin. I don't want our, you know, our uh, facility staff to be cleaning up revulsion in the sanctuary. We need not to just set aside our sins. We need to scatter them, as this verse says. To shatter them so completely, cast them so far away that we can't retrieve them or go back to them. Jesus said, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away from you. He's talking about radical amputation, radical separation from sin, doing whatever it takes to get sin so far away, so removed from you that it can't be reattached. Back in those days, you amputated a hand. There's no way to reattach it. They had no means to do that. Once the hand was amputated, it could never again be attached to the body. That's what he's saying. You've got to get whatever dead thing. It's it's like a a hand rotting with gangrene. You have to actually amputate it and throw it away from you, never to be reattached. That's our attitude towards sin. He uses the phrase, you know, he takes these gold-plated idols and he says, actually, they are an impure thing. And the phrase he uses there describes human waste, something soiled with human waste. I'm sure all of us have experienced a need to clean up human waste. Vomit, feces, pus. What do you do when you have to take that paper towel and clean up the vomit? And now you have the vomit-soaked paper towel in your hand. Do you remember how eager you were to get that out of your hand? Do you remember what it felt like when you, could f- you finally got it in the trash? Or when you finally threw it in the toilet bowl and you finally flushed it down? That's what I'm hoping you'll do with the sin in your life. You couldn't wait to throw it from you. You couldn't wait to get rid of it. That's how we should view our sin. It's a gross and detestable thing. And so out of revulsion, we scatter it and say, be gone. We throw it away and we flush it down. Well, where does revulsion towards sin come from? Right? You go back to your sin or continue in your sin when you cherish it. How do you move from cherishing sin to having revulsion towards sin? Well, you need to shine the light of God's holiness on it. It's when the light of God's holiness is shown on it. In the dark, it it seemed gold-plated. It seemed silver-plated. But when the light of God's holiness shines on it, you see it's an impure thing. It's, it's, It's truly human waste, moral waste. And your heart turns from cherishing it to having revulsion towards it, and that what is what brings you to change. Well, how do you shine the light of God's holiness on your sin? Well, you need to think about what it cost Christ. You need to say to yourself, My Lord suffered for this suffered for what I have done and I am doing. 
His agony shows how vile it is. His suffering for it shows how vile it is. How can I hold on to that for which Christ died? And then you need to think about the harm that it does to yourself, to others. You need to think about what it prevents you from doing, how it hinders you from serving, how it stains your testimony for Christ, prevents you from being an effective witness. And when the light of God's holiness shines on it and you see it is a soiled cloth reeking with vomit and pus and blood, you throw it away from yourself and you say, be gone, I detest you. Be gone forever. Well, what happens then? How does it end? Well, there's a glorious last step, and that is that God will bless and restore you. Remember, verse 18 says, he, he longs to be gracious to you. He waits on high to have compassion on you. If you will repent, he will bless and restore you. And in verses 23 through 26, there's a great promise of blessing and restoration given to Israel. And some of those blessings and restorations are clearly fulfilled in the end times because it talks about changes even to the created order which will occur at the time of the millennial kingdom at the second coming of Christ. So some of those promises are yet to be fulfilled, but the idea here is repeated throughout the scriptures that if you will repent and believe, you will receive God's grace. You will receive his blessing and his restoration because that's the heart of God. He is a forgiving God, a merciful God, a God of grace. And so I want to take kind of those five steps of change from Isaiah 30 and then just kind of simplify them, kind of zoom out from uh, this passage to other uh, passages and kind of compile them and just give you kind of some simplified steps of change. Number one, cry out to the Father in repentant faith. Number two, learn from Christ your teacher. He's your teacher. Learn from him. Third, apply the scriptures in obedience to the Holy Spirit. Fourth, get rid of heart idols which pollute your life. And fifth, rejoice in the grace of God. And by the way, it needs to end with that fifth one. A lot of people they have revulsion for sin, sorrow for, for sin. They, are genuine, they have genuine contrition for sin. They take steps of change, but they never do the last step, which is to believe that God kept his promise. Sometimes people keep their promise to God, but don't believe that God will keep his promise to them. God says, if you confess your sins, I am faithful and just, and I will forgive you of your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So, part of the process of change and of repentance is embracing the grace of God believing the grace of God actually believing that you've been forgiven actually believing that God has removed your sin as far as the east is from the west that he has cleansed you and you are free and you're not bound to your past anymore and you're in the loving embrace of a heavenly father and so that last step of rejoicing is part of the repentance process so don't stop short we rejoice when we realize the whole time the Lord was longing to be gracious to me, waiting on high to have compassion on me, and I am blessed because by grace a longing for God dawned in my heart and then I cried out to him and he heard me and he was gracious to me. He was surely gracious to me and then he sent his spirit to guide me and he sent his son to save me and so I will rejoice in his blessings. So cry out, the Father, learn from Christ, apply 
the scriptures and obedience to the spirit get rid of heart idols and then rejoice and give thanks with gratitude for the grace of God all of us have things we need to change don't we all of us have some gold plated idols that pollute our hearts and our lives I want you to think of the top one what is the besetting sin which comes to your heart when we talk about this what is it and then I want you to think about a second one because typically behind our biggest idol hides a second one and the second one feeds the first and makes the first stronger. So think of the top two, maybe even three. And if you're drawing a blank right now, I want to help you. If you can't think of any sin in your life that you need to change, I'll tell you what should be on your list. Pride, spiritual blindness and hardness of heart you are not an angel on earth so if you can't think of anything you need to change you have been blinded by pride but I want you to think of the top two or three sins areas of besetting sin in your life and I want to ask you do you want to be free do you still think they're gold plated or have you recognized that they are human waste? Once you recognize that they are human waste, then scatter them as an impure thing and say to them, be gone. Turn from sin to the loving, compassionate, forgiving, and gracious embrace of your heavenly Father with faith, knowing that he says, in repentance and rest you will be saved. In quietness and trust is your strength. The Lord longs to be gracious to you. He waits on high to have compassion on you. He is a God of justice and how blessed are all those who long for him. Well, that brings us and we have some time left so we're gonna move on then to the fifth woe. I told the first service I was kind of surprised that we got this far. I was a little discombobulated myself because I have the fifth and sixth woes here but wasn't, you know, was kind of, deviating from my pattern by getting as far as I planned but I do want to move on to the fifth woe because I think it's going to be helpful in relation to what we just talked about and the fifth woe is this woe to those who trust in human power woe to those who trust in human power if you want to change you cannot find the answers in mankind you have to look to God you have to look to the gospel you have to look to Christ you cannot find it in anyone here. Can't find it in me. Can't find it in yourself. Can't find it in anybody out there. There's no guru out there. You need to turn to God. Woe to those who trust in human power. Look at 31 verse 1. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong but they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Who do you go to for help? Who do you rely on? Who do you trust in? Who do you look to? Who do you seek? Is it the Lord? Or is it someone or something else woe to those who trust in human power you know human beings are pretty strange creatures we get ourselves into a mess we won't admit that we got ourselves into the mess but we think we can get ourselves out we get ourselves into a mess 
We want to admit we got ourselves into the mess, but then we think we can get ourselves out. It's exactly backwards, right? It's like, you know, we jump into a cesspool. We want to admit that we're the ones who jumped in the cesspool, but we do think we can get out when really, you know, we got it backwards, right? Only God can get us out. We got ourselves in. Sometimes we even blame God. God, you got me into this. No, no. We think we can jump into a cesspool and then pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We're slow to admit that we're sinners and quick to assume we can be our own saviors. But Romans 5 says that we are helpless. Ephesians 2 says that we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Thinking that you can save and change yourself is like thinking that a dead man can give himself CPR. Have you ever seen a corpse? You know, clear, you know, he grabs the paddles. No, he, he's helpless. And nothing is more helpless than a corpse. You can do nothing to save yourself. You can do nothing to deliver yourself. You need the giver of life. By the way, every religion in the world, except for the biblical gospel, every man-made religion, or more accurately, every demon-made religion, teaches that there is something that humanity can do to save humanity. Something you can do to save yourself. And the different religions have different formulas. You know, you've got to do these rituals or those rituals. You've got you've to do this religious practice or that religious practice. But it's all things you do to save you. And you can get to paradise or utopia or whatever they call it by something that you do for you. My friends, you can't. You're dead in trespasses and sins. Spiritual death. You are helpless. That's why the scripture says, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. He saved us. You need God to do for you what you could never do for yourself, which is to live the perfect life that Christ lived, which you didn't live, to die an infinite life make an infinite sacrifice of sin through, through his death on the cross which you could never do to rise from the dead which you could never do you need what he did for you we are only saved by grace for it is by grace that you have been saved through faith Ephesians 2 says and this is not from yourself it's a gift of God it is not by works not by what you do so that no one can boast no saved person can boast I was saved because of me no no I was saved by God through what he did for me by the way throughout scripture Old Testament and New we're constantly warned against trusting in mankind rather than God for example let me just read you Jeremiah chapter 17 listen to the warning against trusting in mankind this is Jeremiah 17 5 thus says the Lord Cursed is the man who trusts in mankind and makes flesh his strength and whose heart turns away from the Lord. See, if you trust in man, you're not trusting in God. If your strength is in mankind, you're not following the Lord. Your heart is turned away from him. And that's going to lead to cursing. He will be like a bush in the desert. He will not see when prosperity comes. He will live in stony wastes in the wilderness, a land of salt without inhabitant. 
But conversely, verse seven says, blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord and whose trust is the Lord. He'll be like a tree planted by the water that extends its roots by a stream and will not fear when the heat comes, but its leaves will be green and it will not be anxious in a year of drought nor cease to yield fruit. Don't trust in mankind, trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. Don't trust in human power. A similar warning is given to the people of Israel in chapter 31 of Isaiah. Remember, in the historical context, they were faced with the impending Assyrian invasion. And so they needed deliverance. To whom will they turn? To God, the one who made the covenant with them to protect them? No. No, they went to Egypt instead, to their former enslavers. They turned to Pharaoh instead of Yahweh for help. They put their trust in human power. I want you to look at chapter 31, verse 1 of Isaiah. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses and trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong. But they do not look to the Holy One of Israel nor seek the Lord. Woe to those who go down to Egypt for help, rely on horses, trust in chariots because they're many, and horsemen because they're very strong. They don't look to the Holy One of Israel, nor do they seek the Lord. Why did they turn to Egypt? Why? There's two reasons given. There's two phrases that begin with the word because. They went down to Egypt for help. It says, because they are many. Egypt had the numbers. They had lots of chariots. They trust in chariots because they are many. And the second reason is in the next phrase. And in horsemen because they are very strong. So there were two reasons why they turned to Egypt. Because Egypt had the most chariots and they had the strongest cavalry. They had numbers and they had power. And in those two phrases we see the twin temptations which have so often lured the hearts of men away from trust in God and into trusting in fallen flesh numbers and power it's always about numbers and power and history both church history and world history shows that people are drawn to numbers and power like a moth to a flame if someone comes with enough numbers or enough power, the vast majority of people will gravitate to them. Antichrist will do this in the end times. He'll come with enough numbers, enough popularity, and enough power, and most everyone will follow him. And that's played out again and again throughout history. This is human nature. We are drawn to numbers and power like a moth to a flame. I'll give you some practical examples of that. Think of politics throughout history and ours. People tend to look for numbers and power, not character and wisdom when they choose who to vote for. Think about the church context. People tend to look for numbers and power, not truth and love when choosing a church. 
or choosing a church strategy. How many church strategies are all about boosting the numbers and the influence of the leaders? People out in the vocational world tend to look for numbers and power, not integrity and service when they gauge who is successful and who is not. People are drawn to numbers and power. Numbers and power. Numbers and power. And that tendency to gravitate towards numbers and power becomes especially acute when people feel threatened, pressured, or afraid. When people feel threatened by some encroaching evil, they tend to seek support and protection from whoever is the most powerful and can bring the greatest numbers to bear on the issue. That's exactly what ancient Israel did. They saw the wicked and evil Assyrians, the brutal Assyrians approaching, and so they turned to the strongest, the largest, and most powerful source of help that they could find, and that was Egypt. But listen to what Isaiah tells King Hezekiah later on in chapter 36, verse 6. He says, Behold, you rely on the staff of that crushed reed, even on Egypt, on which if a man leans, it will go into his hand and pierce it. So is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who rely on him. In other words, the supposed strength of Egypt was just an illusion. Relying on Egypt or on any other human power like leaning on a staff made of reeds. It simply breaks when you lean on it and then the splinters jab into your hand and so you not only fall, but you're wounded as you fall on the staff you've leaned on. Relying on the power and numbers of human help Relying on the power and numbers of some human source of help and salvation is a fool's errand. Because as mighty as these pseudo-saviors might seem, they are still mere men. Look at chapter 31, verse 3. Now the Egyptians are men and not God. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. So the Lord will stretch out his hand. And he who helps, that's the Egyptians, will stumble. And he who is helped, that's Israel, will fall. And both of them will come to an end together. This is the downfall of those who trust in human power. Those they trust in fall, and therefore they fall with them. And Jesus said, you know, a blind man can't lead a blind man. They'll both fall into the pit. Fallen man can't save fallen man. You rely on human power, you will fall when the human power you've relied on falls. And they all fall. They all fall. Sooner or later. But again, it's human tendency to gravitate towards numbers and power, especially when there's a threat. People forget it's something we need to teach more often in in our history classes. But when we ask the question, how did a, a nation like Germany just in mass gravitate into the clutches of the Nazi party. How? Well, people forget something. They forget that in the 20s and 30s, there was a really strong communist movement that was sweeping Europe. And people were very threatened by the ascendancy of communism. They were freaked out. They were afraid. And so 
but the communists were strong and they were gaining in power and so the people were saying who can stop this rising red wave and up stands Hitler and his Nazis and his brown shirts and his stormtroopers and says we can we have the power and we have the numbers to stop them and the German people embraced fascism to save them from communism it's human nature to do this don't rely on numbers or power you need to go to God for help rely on him trust in him look to him and seek him not human power so as we conclude the point is this don't put your trust in mortal man no matter how many numbers they have no matter how powerful they are put your trust in God look to him for help and deliverance and then look to his word for guidance how to apply that in life we know historically that the Egyptians failed to help the Israelites the Israelites fell and just as was predicted they fell together Egypt despite their numbers despite their power turned out to be nothing more than a broken reed nothing you can lean on but where Egypt failed God succeeded and I want to close by reading to you the prophecy of divine deliverance that's in chapter 31 verses 6 through 9 return to him from whom you have deeply defected O sons of Israel for in that day every man will cast away his silver idols and his gold idols which your sinful hands have made for you as a sin and the Assyrian will fall by a sword not of man and a sword not of man will devour him so he will not escape the sword God is saying look there's going to come a time in which you will repent and trust in me and then I will deliver you. I will keep the promises I made to deliver Israel from their enemies when you repent and trust in me. That prophecy was fulfilled during the reign of King Hezekiah as recorded in Isaiah chapter 37 which we'll get to in a few weeks. Divine deliverance, that's where our hope is. So bringing it back to kind of the major theme the theme of change in our lives. I want to end and draw your attention to verse 6, Isaiah 31, 6. Return to him from whom you have deeply defected. He waits at the end of the road, full of grace and compassion. Return from, to him from whom you have deeply defected. Lord, pray that all of us, Lord, in the ways in which we have deeply defected. And Lord, all of us have that top one, that top two or three, Lord, ways in which we have deeply defected to help us to return to you. Lord, especially for those who don't know you at all, who are unsaved, I pray that they will turn from their wicked ways and that they will put their trust and faith in you and you alone. For you are a God of compassion who longs to be gracious, waits on high to have compassion. And you bless all those who will simply long for you. Pray for each heart here in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I invite you to stand and let